You're listening to Banished, I'm Amna Khalid. In August of 1983, Michael Shermer was participating in the second annual race across America, from the Santa Monica Pier in California to the boardwalk of Atlantic City. I decided first I wanted to see if I could go nonstop without any sleeping at all. 3,170 miles coast to coast on a bicycle. As you can imagine, that would have the potential to be life-changing. For Michael Shermer, it was. I figured that was going to be about 10 to 11 days with no sleep. And this had been done before, but I thought I really need some good nutrition to get me there. So I hired this nutritionist to come on my crew and he plied me with just tons of mega vitamins and mineral supplements. And on top of that, I was doing all these other things like iridology, where you have your iris red and colonics, you don't want to know, and mud baths and pyramidology. You put the pyramid over your head and sleep. And and I had this air purification device in my bedroom and on and on and on. And I just got to thinking from my training as a scientist, where's the controls? It's an N of one. It's just me trying these different things. And I didn't feel like it was working too well. So... After he gave me a handful of these vitamins up this long 10-mile climb, I got up the road and spit them out and decided, you know, I think being a skeptic is better than being credulous. So that was the day I became a card-carrying skeptic. Shama is now what you may call a professional skeptic. That label became his livelihood when, 30 years ago, he founded Skeptic Magazine and the nonprofit organization The Skeptic Society. Our mission basically is promoting science and critical thinking, rationality, reason, and and so forth in the teeth of, you know, fake news, alternative facts, superstition, pseudoscience, and and then I'm a professor at Chapman University, just, just one class, one day a week, called Skepticism 101. So I'm teaching these 18-year-olds how to think, which is quite the challenge these days. Shermer spread the gospel of skepticism not only in the classroom, but in the pages of Scientific American where for 18 years he wrote a regular column promoting the scientific method, truth, and objective reality. 214 consecutive monthly columns. I was pretty proud of that. My hero was Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote 300 consecutive monthly columns for natural history. So I was going for his mark, which would have been April 2024, I think it was. Would have been. At the beginning of 2019, Scientific American canceled Shermer's column, which it turns out was perhaps too skeptical. I was writing about an experience I had with a documentary crew that wanted me to comment on horror films in which bad things happen to the actors involved in the filming. So you had this Mm. confirmation bias filter in which they're just looking for examples of horror films where bad things happen to the actors. And I said, well, what about the horror films where nothing bad happened? Or what about good films that are not horror films at all? in which bad things happen to the actors. And so then I used a less quotidian example in this case from Carol Tavris, a social psychologist, about a common prevailing theory that adults who abuse their children were themselves abused as children, or adults who molest children were themselves molested as children. That's one hypothesis. But what about adults who abuse their children who were not abused as children? And what about children that are molested grow up to be non-molesters, right? So my editor objected to this, said, well, we can't say that because it sounds like you're downplaying childhood abuse and molestation. And that's not really right to do that because it discounts people's feelings and pain. It's like my column has nothing to do with 
the impact of sexual molestation or abuse. It's just, what is the cause of it? This is what we want to know as social scientists. You know, determining causality in social science is really difficult. And we're subject to these biases like this confirmation bias. You have the one focus. What about the counterexample? So I rewrote that one (laughs) and managed to get that through. And then I was commenting on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And the column was Mm -hmm. about this kind of trend that we've seen over the decades and centuries that I've written about and Steven Pinker. And I listed off a bunch of books saying, look, actually, we've made a lot of human progress and things are better really than they've ever been historically, which is not to say that there aren't still problems in terms of race relations, but they're better. Then I gave lots of examples of this. And I said, one of the reasons for this kind of misfocus we have is the immediate availability heuristic. That is, whatever you've seen on the news, another police killing or race tensions that tricks our brain into thinking, well, things are bad and getting worse, when in fact things are good and getting better, even allowing for these bad things that still occasionally happen. And that column was completely killed, so you can't say this at all. So I thought, huh, I wonder what's going on here. This kind of hyper-focus on the sensitivity of readers' feelings about these things, that doesn't sound like science to me. This idea that things are bad and getting worse, it's just not true. And we want to know what's true. Some of the key things that I see happening right now is a complete conflation between correlation and causation, something that I feel like even humanities students before college should know the difference between the two. And today we find that that difference is completely flattened. And it's disturbing to me when it happens in a place like the Scientific American, because the claim to fame is that it is presenting scientific ideas. And the other thing is this tendency to decontextualize what people have said or their ideas and present them in a way that fans the flames. As someone who's been watching this space for a while, who's been writing in this space and engaging in these ideas, what do you think accounts for this inability to appreciate context? I think there's several factors going on, you know, just human psychology, that social media, you're very anonymous, so you don't have to contextualize anything. You can just, the equivalent of flipping somebody off inside your car when they cut you off, you just fire stuff out there. And I have noticed that occasionally when I'll write somebody that sends me something nasty, they're just shocked to hear from me and they almost always apologize like, oh, I didn't think you'd write. <laughs> I, I really didn't mean <laughs> to sound so harsh. Yeah. Oh, okay. You mean he realized there's a person on the other end here. I do think this lack of charity because of this narrative that we're all implicitly racist and bigoted, misogynist, therefore that sets up a hypothesis. This is what everybody is now. Let me see if I can find evidence to support it rather than, well, maybe it's not true. Let's see if I can find some evidence to counter it, falsify that hypothesis. And we do know from cognitive studies that people naturally incline toward confirming the hypothesis Mm -hmm. and not falsifying it. In other words, humans are not naturally popperian. They don't try to falsify their hypotheses. They try to confirm them. And that we need to be more Bayesian, which we are kind of naturally just, you know, looking to increase the confidence in our our credences and update our priors in a way that supports it. So I think a lot of it is human psychology plus the social aspects of it. 
And what do you say to people who say that the very ideas and the very kind of frameworks that you are engaging in to do with rationality are the construct of white supremacy and reinforce the tyranny of white men over society? Well, some of that used to be true. Again, that was then, this is now. Follow the trend lines, not the headlines. Things are much better than they used to be. Just take a few examples, like, you know, same-sex marriage. Look how fast that changed from 2015 to now, and no one's even talking about it anymore. Even conservative circles and talk shows, they, they don't even talk about it. It's like, whatever, much the same way that no one talks about interracial marriage. You know, 1967, it was still illegal in the United States for different race people to marry. It's astonishing. The fact that you can still occasionally find somebody that will object to it, okay, you know, that it's never going to be zero. So again, we have to take the bigger picture, which is what I think knowledge does and information does, which is why we have to have open conversations and not just want to deplatform somebody. I've been commenting this week on the Neil Young and other artists now want to remove their content from Spotify because Joe Rogan talked to certain people. Okay. But how do you know Robert Malone is wrong when he talks about vaccines or masks on Joe Rogan's podcast? I mean, it's one thing to say, well, if you talk to Robert Malone, I'm taking my music down. Well, how do you know he's wrong? If he's wrong, tell us why he's wrong. Why should I have to have you tell me what I can listen to? To me, there's kind of a bigotry of low expectations there. The American public is so mm. dumb, so gullible, so irrational that they can't even listen to Joe Rogan or else they're going to be corrupted. Come on. The bigger problem is that we have to have open dialogue and conversations because none of us are omniscient. I'm not God and neither are you. There is objective truth and I don't know what it is. I don't is know. I often either. think I am. <laughs> you feel that way? <laughs> no, okay, good. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> got to be just God. <laughs> it's a community. It's a social process. The scientific method is itself a social process, as is journalism, fact-checking. You know, the justice system is set up to be adversarial mm -hmm. so that each side gets a, a strong argument in their favor. So these are what Jonathan Rosh calls the constitution of knowledge. You know, we all want justified true belief, which is what how knowledge is defined, justified true belief. But how do you know? Well, you got to check with other people because operating in a vacuum, you might have gone off the rails. You might be completely wrong. And because of all the cognitive biases, there's no way to know unless you talk to somebody that says, hey, Shermer, come on, that's a crazy idea. It is? I thought it was a great idea. No, it's a crazy idea, and here's why. Oh, right, okay. Without that feedback, which you can only get by talking to other people. So even though I, on the vaccine mask question, you know, I'm double vax boosted. I got my M box of M95 masks. I've been tested twice this week alone. Okay, fine. I'm not allowed to listen to a vaccine hesitant person or listen to Joe Rogan talk to somebody who has some alternative points of view? Come on. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what we're beginning to see unfold in K through 12 education in certain mm. states and also now higher education, anti-CRT bills and mm. book bans. Mm. How do you react to that? Where do you put that in mm. the spectrum of cancellations? Mm. Yes, I was concerned about the teaching of critical race theory at public schools at a very young age. I have a five-year-old. I, you know, I can't imagine in the next couple of years he's going to be presented with this kind of material. He's not even going to know what the hell's going on. Just age appropriate. You know, we'll learn about slavery and Jim Crow and all the dark side of Western civilization history. For sure, that's good. 
So at first I was pretty supportive of people like Chris Rufo who's gathering up these critical race theory curriculums and programs and what students were hearing and so on. But then he shifted toward this, we're going to ban, we're going to pass laws to ban the teaching of critical race theory. And my ears pricked up. You know, he's posting these kind of list of topics that teachers should be banned from teaching. It's like, wait a minute, banning subjects? That sounds like the wrong direction. That's the opposite of what we should be doing. You know, Mm -hmm. there's an underlying principle here of open dialogue, free speech. You're either in favor of that or you're not. You can't pick and choose and just say, I'm in favor of free speech, you know, the stuff that I like, but I don't like that critical race theory. So I'm going to work to get that banned. Now, it's a little bit complicated because Mm -hmm. it is public schools and different states have different programs for how they decide which material gets taught in public schools. So if it was just private schools, I guess, you know, maybe you'd have one private school that doesn't teach it at all, another one that teaches it entirely, and parents could choose something like that, but that's not the system we have. So it ends up being up to school boards or state boards of education. There is no federal board of education that decides curriculum for all the mm-hmm. states. So, you know, it's complicated by the fact that parents pay tax dollars that support property tax, for example, that supports public schools, and they feel like they should have a say okay, have a say, object to being taught in your kid's public school. But that's different. That's kind of a bottom-up protest. Like, I don't like that this is being taught, as opposed to let's pass a law that bans these topics. And then what? Then you have to enforce it. So all of a sudden, you're back to kind of like that 1950s blacklist, the McCarthyism of, you know, we're going to ban all communist ideas. No, no, no. This never ends well. So would you say that across the board, we are facing a time when censoriousness is on the rise, which would be really quite something for the U.S. that stands as a bastion of the free world? Well, if you look at the long history of battles for free speech, there's nothing really new going on now. It's just a little more Mm -hmm. prominent because of social media and immediate. In other words, you hear about it within hours (laughs) rather than, say, weeks or months or years, you know, when you find out the government was doing this or the state was doing that. I mean, this goes Mm -hmm. back thousands of years. I think there's a natural human impulse to want to silence people that disagree with us. That seems to be human nature, especially if you are in a position of power where you can actually do something about it. That's what autocrats do. They will absolutely control the press if they can, if you let them. So you actually have to have laws in place to protect the press and the media. Nevertheless, that censorious attitude seems to be built into human nature, and we must resist it at all times. And it's hard to do, I know, but just counter with better facts. People who are arguing for others to be silenced forget that there's also the right to hear, which is being violated. It's not just to be thought of in terms of the right to speak. That's a really good point. My right to hear different arguments. Right. So let's say Spotify, D-platforms, Joe Rogan. Well, he could just probably go somewhere else, but let's say he's gone. Well, I was looking forward to that conversation he was going to have with so-and-so. Why? I can't hear that now? Well, of course, I have other options. I know. But you don't, Michael. I mean, you may have other options when it comes to listening to Joe Rogan, because he's in a position where he will be able to go to a different platform. But the point is that there are many who are not in that position. These kinds of moves will continue to silence them and prevent you from listening to those who can't afford to do that. Yes, exactly. Right. It's my right to hear. So a university invites a speaker to speak and students show up because they want to hear what the speaker has to say. And then the heckler's veto takes over and they're shouted out. You know, the students say, well, I have a right to protest and not hear this. 
yeah, just don't show up if you don't want to hear it. Well, no, I want to go protest. Or protest by all means. Yes, but what about the rights of the students yeah. sitting there? They go, hey, shut up. I want to hear what this guy has to say, even if I disagree with it, right? Exactly. You know, that when Middlebury had Charles Murray speak. Okay, I know Charles Murray. You know, I disagree with his views on race and IQ, for example. But could you counter? Is it What's wrong with his argument? You know, that's what I want to know. Why do I disagree? Well, I can tell you. But, you know, just saying, well, he's a white supremacist. That's not a rebuttal. That's not refuting his arguments. You know, he's a racist. What if he is? So what? What if his facts are right? It doesn't matter if he's a racist or not. What's wrong with the facts? Okay, that's what we got to get to. And the only way to do that is to have an open dialogue about it. Now, a university doesn't have to invite Charles Murray to speak. But if they do, let him speak. Right. Let the students hear what he has to say or set up a debate and have somebody counter his arguments. You know, that would be even more interesting. Precisely. And, and like you were saying, students have the right to protest, but not protest where it silences the speaker. They can mm -hmm. stand there and protest and, you know, let mm -hmm. the event go ahead. That is their right. You have to think, what if it's somebody that I don't like and they're saying something that I find just repulsive? That's the test, Right. Are you willing to defend the right of the Nazi neo-Nazis to march in Skogie like the ACLU did famously? And, you know, Ira Glasser, who was yeah. the president for decades, you know, he's a little distraught now about what the ACLU has done. They now have kind of a little bit of a smell test whether they'll take a case or not. That is to say, we'll defend the speech of anybody anywhere as long as it doesn't offend other people. Well, what? <laughs> the ACLU was built on the very idea that we're going to defend the speech of people who are offensive to other people. That's the whole point of the First Amendment, right? Anybody could happily be in favor of free speech of people that they agree with and like. <laughs> That's not the point. That's the test for you there. Are you willing to defend somebody who you really detest, disagree with, you don't like their ideas? That would be your test. Thank you so much, Michael. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Michael Shermer is founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of the podcast The Michael Shermer Show, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. If you enjoyed what you heard today and would like more discussions about cancel culture censorship and freedom of thought, please consider becoming a member at booksmartstudios.org. You'll get access to bonus segments, written columns, and special episodes. More importantly, you'll be supporting all the work we do here at Booksmart. Don't forget to rate and share Banished on whichever platform you listen, and leave us a comment so we know what you think. Our success here at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo, and I, as always, am Amna Khalid. Toodaloo!